The Allergy Mom podcast is not intended to provide listeners with medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Individuals with health problems should always consult their health care provider for professional medical advice, medications, or treatments. Reliance on any information provided during this podcast is done solely at your own risk. You're listening to the Allergy Mom podcast hosted by Melissa Scheichel, an educator, advocate, speaker, author, counselor, and best of all, allergy mom. Subscribe now for the latest news, tips, hot topics, and answers to your questions and concerns about living a life with allergies. Now, here's your host, Melissa Scheichel. Welcome to another episode of the Allergy Mom podcast. I could not be more excited and honored to welcome this session's guest, Dr. Inderpal Rendawa from the Southern California Food Allergy Institute. I've often joked with friends and family about having celebrities on the show. It's been uh, my goal to have Michelle Obama as she is an allergy mom. (laughs) I've also wanted to have Zoe Deschanel, Dua Lipa, and other famous celebrities whose lives have been affected by food allergies in some way, whether personally or through caring for a loved one who suffers with a food allergy. Uh, But honestly, I I really think that today's guest uh, would be hard to beat, if not impossible. There is no one that I can imagine being more honored to have an hour of his time. Uh, That that being said very respectfully. (laughs) But this man is the person who is my personal hero. He has not only changed my life and more importantly, my daughter's life, uh, but he's potentially saved it. And his program, when I first found out about it, and I'm very grateful to my friend uh, Millie, who is the one who reached out and introduced me to this program. Um, When I first found out about it, it seemed too good to be true. And it was the only program in the world offering the level of safety that was promised and just, you know, giving us this possibility of food freedom, meaning that my child could uh, successfully eat all the foods that she was previously unable to eat and eat them in any amount. So she would have a complete food freedom. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming the amazing and uh, affectionately known as Dr. R, uh, Dr. Inderpal Rendawa, to this episode of the Allergy Mom podcast. Also joining us today is another patient, Ellery Estevan, who has been sharing her journey as a young adult participating in the TIP program. She is currently undergoing treatment through Southern California Food Allergy Institute and shares some of her feelings and insights into the program with us as well today on this episode. Welcome, Ellery, and of course, Dr. R. Hello. Everybody. All right. Well, thank you. I want to start out uh, just by thanking you for your time, Dr. Rendawa. It's such a privilege. I said, trying to explain to people today, I said, this to me is like the biggest celebrity that I will ever have. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but we met in 2018 and my daughter graduated from the program in May. She went into her remission. So I am forever indebted to you. Um, 
life has not been the same since she graduated. And every time I go into the grocery store, it's a gift that I don't have to read ingredient labels. Uh, I was just saying to Ellery that we had our first ever family vacation this past summer where she could eat, you know, a normal vacation and eat at a resort. We went to Atlantis and Bahamas and she swam with dolphins and did all these amazing things. But for her, the highlight of the trip was eating at Nobu and getting to eat sushi and order off a menu and, and just have, you know, that normal life experience. So thank you from the bottom of my heart forever and always. Mm-hmm. You're Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's still unreal. And I was also saying as a Canadian, she had her first Timbit at age 15, which is, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean she's never had a Timbit before? But Tim Horton's allergy policy has always been, if you have allergies, please don't eat here. We can't guarantee mm-hmm. you safe. And, and so that was a first, um, which, you know, I think most kids is one of their first foods here in Canada. So <laughs> that's awesome. No, I, I, you know, I tell everybody, you know, that's, you know, that's the definition of, of life, right, is uh, creating memories. Um, and, and these are all awesome memories that you get to create and, and new memories for, for her as well. So that's mm-hmm. awesome. Well done. Yeah, and I, I'm really excited to have Ellery as a patient who's uh, currently going through the program. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, and, thank you. Uh, sharing your story with us. So I, I did post on social media that I would be interviewing you and I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I figured I'd put it out to, you know, to everyone and see what are the, what are the most common things people want to know. Uh, but maybe to start, if you can just start Dr. Rindawa by telling us about yourself, how you got into this field, uh, how you developed the program and, and all of that good stuff. No, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for um, having me. I think, uh, you know, this has been uh couple decades worth of work so far and you know we have much more work to do i uh, got into this space mainly honestly due to uh my own experience uh you know i i've always had an interest in asking uh, tough questions i think i've always been a very curious person but it's been a situation where i've always tried to uh get as deep as possible into medical space uh, when I got into the world of the intensive care unit, I found that it was even more complicated than that. Uh, I'm a transplant physician to this day. And, you know, when I saw kids come in with food anaphylaxis, um, it was really strange to me that, you know, these kids who were otherwise totally healthy uh, had such severe responses to some, something simple as food. Uh, and, and often we could not reverse it effectively. So, that's where it all began. I mean, I think what makes my approach different is my uh, fundamental desire to understand how we can use a different set of outcomes as our primary goal. Uh, and, you know, that means have a disease state, reach a remission state, and utilize everything possible we can to design that out over time. That's really what it comes down to. And I've done so with other diseases. A lot of people don't know that, you know, that, that you know, food anaphylaxis is one condition. We've done this actually highly effectively with sickle cell disease uh, when it comes to lungs. We've done it with a couple other rare lung diseases. And, uh, you know, food anaphylaxis happens to be one that is on the map in a big way. But uh, the model is the same. It's using a lot of applied math, understanding what your fundamental goals are, and then building as many systems as possible to get to that, that end goal. And is this what you would refer to as precision medicine? You know, in 2011, I kind of used that term a little bit uh, loosely. Um, I thought, to me, 
when I define precision medicine, it it's very specific, right? In current modern medicine, we have only a few options. You get a drug or you get a diagnosis, either you respond to it or you don't, or you respond with side effects. So you end up only having a few options. The truth is what precision medicine should be is looking at the entire complexity of a medical case, understanding what multitude of options are available for treatment, and then targeting that in the most precise way to get to an actual outcome. And so I feel like that is what precision medicine should be, but that term is used very loosely, unfortunately. Yeah, I think for me, it resonated with, you know, answering the question of why isn't this more readily available? It's not like a drug that you can just prescribe up to this point. You know, most people, I think, are just told avoidance is is how you treat these allergies or how you handle having this type of a diagnosis. And and then you've got, you know, emergency medications that you can use in case of a reaction, but they're not preventative. And so, um, you know, when I found out about the program, I had people reach out because I was on social media talking about, you know, living a life with these allergies, how we managed avoiding things and and modifying our diet and things like that to be safe. Uh, And so, you know, when people reached out and said, there's this amazing Dr. Rendawa in California, you are coming here. One of your patients invited me to a movie premiere. They had made a documentary about living with food allergies. I had no idea it was about treatment in any way. Just, again, thought it was about how we live this life, avoiding it. Uh, so then when I found your website and, and was referred to your website by another one of your patients, it seemed too good to be true. I said, how is this possible that there's an answer when nobody, you know, that I had known about was talking about this anywhere else in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was in tears. And I don't know, you know, if you want to speak to that, Ellery, how you found out about the program and, and if it seemed too good to be true also, because. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so. My mom actually first found about it um, through like a Facebook, like food allergy support group um, by another patient, Natalie. Um, And my mom was hearing about TIP and like OIT. And I think she posted a question on one of the support groups and was like, what's the difference? And I think it was mainly Natalie and maybe some other patients that reached out and like really explained the difference of like what they do and what the end goals are. And it was like, oh, TIP's like, no offense to OIT, but like tips like a lot better. <laughs> um, so that's kind of how I first like found out about it. And honestly, yeah, it's really. I'm glad you brought that up because I find in, in other interviews where I'm interviewing people who are in this world, in the mm-hmm. allergy world, um, they're, they often use those terms. Well, they use the term OIT, oral immune suppressant therapy, I believe is what it refers to. Um, and then they were using it interchangeably with tips. So when I would refer to your program, Dr. Vandala, they were kind of, and I'm like, no, it's not the same. And I think there are a lot of questions about what is the difference between, you know, what is OIT versus this tolerance reduction program. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, we've done different forms of oral immunotherapy, I'd say for quite some time, you know, we've been in a situation where, you know, whether it's say, for example, uh, you know, penicillin or an antibiotic or something like that, they want to desensitize somebody. That's where oral immunotherapy comes in because it's built on that same old model. How is somebody going to going to actually 
get to a point where they can tolerate a certain dose of, an, of a drug. So what they would do is they would dilute the drug, like literally take a drug, dilute it one to 10,000, one to 100,000 and start giving it to people until they get to a point where they can get to that much exposure. And then that's it. The trick though, that's, that's right. It, and the trick with that is we can't get to a position where, say, for example, it's an antibiotic. You got to take it for five days or seven days. As soon as you stop taking it, within eight to 12 hours, you're back to being anaphylactic to that drug again. And that's what desensitization does. It provides this kind of temporary relief, if you will, over time, uh, over the time that you actually take that drug. Oral immunotherapy OIT is kind of the same model. It was really this kind of diluted version of, of, a, of, uh, of treatment. So if you're anaphylactic to peanuts, they give you this super diluted small version of peanut and they start, you know, bringing it back up to some amount until you can handle some very tiny amount. Hopefully, if not, you end up getting in a bad position with a reaction or even worse. So tip fundamentally is different because it's based on actual numbers. It's based on applied math. It's based on cross-matching. So when a patient is coming into this program, their treatment plan is based on steps. It's pretreatment conditioning, tolerance reduction, remission. The doses are calculated based on math of matching. And so we're not going like from a hundred one to a hundred thousand to one to ten thousand. We're going from 36 milligrams to 56 milligrams to 110 milligrams, which is all based on that math, which ties down to the protein. So we're trying to match numbers specifically with the end goal being not just a temporary state of relief, but an actual long-term state of tolerance. Whereas, as you know, you can eat any amount of that protein you want seven days apart of sustained unresponsiveness. And then they're in a state where they don't have to limit their intake of, of that food at all. Yeah, that to me seemed to be the big difference was that, you know, I, I see the hashtag associated with your program of food freedom, right? You, It's not that you can tolerate maybe five peanuts. And if you accidentally come into contact with peanut, you, you know, you're safe. But anything more than that, you're at risk. It was this idea of, you know, you can eat as much as you want of the food, mm -hmm. which again, seemed so hard to believe after years and years of avoidance. Uh, one of the questions that comes up quite often um, with anyone who's reached out to me is, you know, why is this not more readily available? Why are other clinics not doing it? Why is it not peer review reviewed? How come, you know, we can't get this where we live? That's a lot of questions. So let me try and, I guess, break that down. Um, so I think the first point is people need to understand what it takes to get one patient through this program. Uh, we have hundreds of employees, 150,000 square feet of space, uh, incredible amount of automation, incredible amount of, of technology and data built into the process. And this fundamentally is a combination of plant biology, uh, immunology, meaning immunological molecular uh, diagnostics, and clinical therapy, clinical outcomes. So all these things are happening simultaneously for every single patient. and. That's all done under extreme supervision and regulation. So in order to be peer reviewed, and remember, I have well over 100 publications in food allergy and, and certainly well outside of food allergy in peer reviewed journals. In, in, to be peer reviewed, you must have peers. So if I submit a publication to an applied math journal, no problem. They'll look at it and then they start looking at the clinical items and they say, well, we don't know what that is. We don't, we don't feel comfortable reviewing it. Okay. If I send it into a diagnostics journal, 
they'll look at it and say, well, I don't know what this plant biology stuff is. That's too complicated. I don't have a peer. And vice versa, if I send it to a plant biology journal and you bring in clinical outcomes, it becomes difficult to do that. So finding the peer is is the difficult question. We've been published in peer-reviewed journals. I mean, that's that's not the issue. Uh, but you know, our next step has to be really the FDA. Uh, the US FDA is the next step. We've already uh, had discussions with their machine learning uh, department, uh, which really only opened last year. It's the first time ever we have an opportunity to submit this. So we will be working on that this year. But you know, fundamentally when something is this complicated, it cannot be be peer-reviewed in a simple form. I mean, people can use that term loosely, but those are the facts. We've certainly submitted this to all the typical journals only to be told right around that we don't have anybody who can understand this stuff. Go submit it somewhere else. Um, and that makes you feel real good. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, the second aspect of it is it, it, think about all that went into having this program run. How do you put that in a clinic in Toronto? How do you put that in a clinic in Texas? I mean, it's not the typical form of medicine. So this is a very unique model. Uh, I do think it's it's a strong model that can be applied to any disease, but it would really force our entire healthcare systems to understand and look at things differently. It really changes the machination of, of, of the model of healthcare because you're now saying it's not about a doctor or a system, it's about a patient outcome. And if we all base it on patient outcomes, you have a whole different a whole different strategy. So what's the best way for people to support the work that you're doing to make this more accessible for other families? Um, I, I'd say step one is just let, you know, people know about it. You know, I mean, you know, get, get you know, getting the word out is useful. Um, I've been doing this for a long time now, you know, 16 plus years and doing this type of work. Uh, I'd say back then we took a lot, a lot of, I took a lot of criticism for even coming up with these kinds of approaches, but now it's, it's different. I mean, we definitely have a lot more support. Uh, we have about 500 plus physicians, kids in our program. We have a couple allergist kids in our program. That says a lot. Um, and I think, you know, it, it really comes down to, to educating people, uh, including doctors, right? So, you know, the more parents talk about it and bring it up, uh, the doctors will start asking questions. And, you know, we've changed our model significantly in having direct outreach to physicians and we have an open dialogue with them. We, you know, give them, you know, tours of our facilities and things of that nature. So, you know, I think there's this kind of misconception out there that we are not trying to share our information. Uh, that's not the issue. It's, it's by all means, let us know what you want to know and we're happy to show it to you. But the reality is that it is so different than what is typical uh, or even remotely close that they don't know what to ask. Uh, I recently got a discussion with a, a allergist in uh, San Diego it was very nice and had a bunch of questions and seen a whole, a whole bunch of her patients had been treated here. So she had no questions about the outcomes. And I gave her a very quick 15 minute on, on how TIP works at the molecular level. And at the end of it, her statement was, I understood about 2% of what you just told me. And this is a board certified allergist, right? So uh, I think that was an honest answer to, you know, kind of the complexity of what we're taught as an allergist versus how this system works. You're really a pioneer in this field. And and I know a lot of people who reach out to me say that they're getting skepticism from their doctors. You know, my doctor, my daughter's pediatrician was quite supportive, but other medical professionals that I spoke to, you know, really weren't sure or even downright, you know, against it saying if it's too good to be true, it is. And 
And so that, you know, it's really hard, especially when you are traveling internationally and there's the costs and everything associated to, to take that leap. And, and it's just not feasible for a lot of families. So, you know, my hope was that by sharing our journey, um, it does get the word out there and, and hopefully as more and more people learn about it, it will become more accessible. Uh, so what allergen group would you say is the hardest to treat? That was another question that a lot of people wanted to know. There's there, you know, we know the top eight in Europe, they talk about the top 14. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, uh, in the end, it all comes down to numbers. Um, so the more proteins that you're trying to tackle, uh, the more proteins that are immunogenic, those are more complicated foods to treat. So uh, to date, at least in the space of plant biology and the research that we've we've done as well, um, you know, wheat is by far the most difficult thing to treat. Um, it's got a large number of differential antigens there that are hard to tackle. We have a hard time conditioning them. Now, by all means, we've treated them and they do well, but it's it's work. It's hard work and it certainly is uh is is uh is complex. Uh that's 25 proteins identified to date. Uh, after that is milk. Uh, cow's milk has about 23 proteins. And after that is peanut with 17 identified proteins to date. So uh, those are those are the top three from my perspective as far as complexity goes. It uh, doesn't mean that you know somebody who has a sesame allergy is any less anaphylactic, but certainly uh, there are fewer primary proteins in sesame. There's only four and you know we can knock that out relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. What are you allergic to, Ellery? I'm anaphylactic to peanut, but um, when I did like the test with tip, I was sensitive to like almonds, hazelnuts, pecans, walnuts, some other tree nuts, but peanut was definitely my most anaphylactic. I think that's the one most people think of when they think of food allergies, right? It's yeah. highly publicized the peanut allergy. And so I think, you know, for us anyways, people had a harder time wrapping their head around the fact that my daughter could be allergic to milk. Right. Mm-hmm. They just, what do you mean you don't have milk? And and they not realizing that means butter and cheese and ice cream and all the other things that are made from milk. So yeah. I, I think peanuts are, are the most popular. Um, are there any food allergies that you're not able to treat at this time? Um, again, if we have data on them, uh, we should be able to treat them. And so to date, um, you know, I'd say our, 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 largest growing um, area of study is mollusks, you know, uh, you know, clams and oysters and such. Uh, you know, again, not a lot of data out there. So we're doing a lot of this kind of from scratch. Uh, we have much more work to be done. But yeah, definitely successful across all the typical proteins. Um, there, there are definitely some things like uh, atypical nuts, um, uh, mushrooms, you know, th- things that uh, some meats, uh, you know, animal meats uh, that are very typical where we just don't have enough data. Um, and certainly if we ever saw cases like that, you know, I think one thing we don't get a lot of credit for is that we take all cases. We take all complexity of cases. We don't say no to anybody. And so with that comes a real breadth of, of uh, uh, you know, interesting cases and interesting data points. So we've been organizing that, studying that. So hopefully, you know, over time, you know, as we see more things and, and we have global patients now, a significant number of global patients. So we have to educate ourselves uh, on those items and, and try to, you know, see what else we can discover and, and research and, and promote to our patients. Mm-hmm. That's something I thought was so interesting about the program. And it was an appeal to me when we were considering OIT versus TIP. Because I knew with OIT, they're using what you're allergic to to desensitize you, as you said. 
but you're using other proteins that match to help do that first. So for example, someone with a cow's milk allergy might be doing camel's milk, which people mm-hmm. you know, had never considered maybe drinking camel milk before or quail or duck eggs or, you know, as opposed to a, a regular egg, those kinds of things. So um, I've heard that people in their slit, which is the sublingual immune therapy, might have cockroaches in there to help them with a the shellfish allergy. So, you know, that, that seems really interesting and amazing and also felt safer using something else that, um, that wasn't maybe going to elicit that same reaction. And, and such a comfort, you know, I felt very reassured in the program by the science saying that you were going to with your numbers could anticipate a reaction. So I didn't need to worry um, that the amount was going to be safe. Yeah. We've been fortunate uh, enough now to have so much data. Uh, and again, you know, we have, again, this very uh, unique set of databases. We have this, you know, plant and animal protein database. We have uh, this huge amount of immunological data and a huge amount of clinical data. I mean, just, you know, going through the process and yet, you know, doing it and doing it with a lot of applied math, being able to forecast how someone's going to do in the program. What it does is it accomplishes the ultimate, which is this has to be done safely. This has to be a good experience. It's not perfect. You're going to, you, you may have a symptom, you may have a, a reaction, but it needs to be simple and smooth enough that it never dissuades a patient to get to the finish line. And, you know, in that we've been extremely successful. You know, we still have about 40% of our patients go A to Z without a single symptom, which I'm very proud of that number. I'd like to see that number even go up. But even the remaining who do have symptoms, often these are very small uh, symptoms, you know, oral itch or, um, you know, a small number of hives, something of that nature. We obviously have some who have more symptoms than that, but that is where we do our best and our diligence to make sure we study that and we understand that we feed it back into the data loop to make sure that that doesn't happen again, you know, if at all possible. So I think it's really important to understand that, you know, by taking in the complexity of cases, all types of proteins, um, all types of foods, essentially. Uh, in all types of cases that we we really can create the best possible program for the whole community of food allergy patients. Yeah. What is the best age for people to start the program? Well, I mean, when I first started this work, um, you know, this was in, in basically pure study format. Uh, you know, average age of patients was around 14 to 15 years old. So basically teenagers. Um, right now we are down to an average age of five, 5.2 years. So basically just over five years of age. And that's mainly because we're having patients, you know, enroll at two years of age, you know, one and a half, yeah, things of that nature. Um, I- I'm not saying that's necessarily better. Uh, I think, you know, the younger a child is, it can be a little difficult because their immune system is not dedicated. It's not focused. So, you know, I, I I'm proud to say that that subgroup, that endotype has done exceedingly well, but it's certainly a little bit, you know, it's, you can't tell exactly where that system's going to go because there's a lot of genetics involved in how quickly that system decides to mature. Uh, however, uh, the nice thing is if you're two or three years old and you can complete the program, then you never remember you had a food allergy, right? Like in their mind, you know, the, the child will never have any recall of that situation, which is a great thing. Um, at the same time, if you're 20 years old and doing the program, uh, there's a lot of baggage, right? There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of history with that. 
And, and, and that's something that you have to pay attention to. But uh, all in all, look, we take everybody uh, up to age 21 and 364 days. Uh, you know, we'll take them basically up to 22. But uh, we are now having a large number of patients who start at that time. So now they're in their, you know, 24, 25 year age group. Uh, we are trying to figure out when we have the ability to build the next phase of, of, of adults, uh, you know, with food anaphylaxis. And that's something that is a priority. Uh, but, you know, that's all in our future. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because as I went through the program with, you know, a child, she was 12 when we started, uh, I was very conscious of that and, and a little bit jealous of the families that were there with younger ones because it did have such an impact on her life, you know, missing the birthday parties, missing all those experiences and the anxiety and the stress and, and just being different and, and going through all that. And I, I'm imagining, Ellery, you would feel the same way having, how old were you when you started? I was 18 when I started. Wow. So yeah, a lifetime of, of dealing with these allergies. And, you know, in some ways, I think with the little ones, it's got to be hard to get them to eat the food. I can't imagine without being able to reason and rationalize and say, you know, this is the end that we're working. So you can, you can bargain that way. You know, I, I don't know how you get a toddler to eat all the doses <laughs> and do all of that. I'm, yeah. I know there's some very creative moms out there baking amazing things and, and, you know, figuring that out. But then on the other end of it, with a teenager, there's other things, right? Teenagers are risk takers. They're maybe not, you know, as compliant with, with some of the doses and things. Mm-hmm. Fine. There's a particular age group that's harder to comply or. Well, I would. I would say a couple things, you know, the, and again, I, I would just like to give credit to, you know, this concept of applied math because, you know, when a program is built for a single patient, it is built across an entire endotype. It also is uh, congruent towards a patient's size, their BMI, their weight essentially, and to their aspect of their immune system as far as how well it's developed. So all the, comes into play. And then we can basically attach to that a compliance rate. Um, so we know how compliant you generally have to be in order to achieve the end goal. And, and the number's not 100%. Uh, you know, I knew that at the very beginning of this as a transplant, you know, uh, physician that if you, if even if your transplant patients are not 100% compliant, how can you expect a food allergy patient to be 100% compliant? That's just not possible. Adults don't even do that. So, you know, having the applied math in there helps a lot because I can tell you we have some patients who are uh, even less than 50% compliant. And as long as we know what we're dealing with, we can usually find solutions to get them to the finish line. It's obviously not ideal. We'd like people to be as you know compliant as possible, but um, that's why we're building an app. Uh, our app actually goes live. Uh, and I think it's very unusual to have a, a medical space have its own patient-specific app. Um, I'm not sure if anybody's seen it yet, but we've been beta testing it for the last two months and uh, it actually goes live this month with about 300 more patients. And then in probably the second week of January, it will launch to all patients in our program, which is great. Even if you're in remission, it'll ping you, tell you what to do when patient specific um, and, you know, auto updates, it tracks compliance, it tracks concerns. Uh, we'll use it as a, a ultimate communication tool for all of our patients. But again, none of it's possible without the mathematical approach. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's for me a concern with you know, having a teenager who, you know, now is in remission is living this life of freedom and, you know, 
I, I keep saying the words food is thy medicine. You know, you need to be compliant and, and keeping up this maintenance and it's scary, right? So um, have you found any of your patients who in remission had to come back and, and restart the program or anything like that? So we've been, uh, we, we've had some, you know, uh, interesting experiences in that realm. Um, you know, we've had patients miss uh, per their own uh, admission. Uh, they hit remission. They're on weekly cycles of exposure. They're on week ra- weekly rounds of sustained unresponsiveness. And they'll stop eating all their proteins uh, for two months. And, you know, they'll they'll own up to it and they have no symptoms. So the first thing we do is we run their their numbers again, right? Because everything has to be based on math. And we've generally found that even at that stage, if you've reached remission, missing several months did not shift their numbers uh, significantly. And, and we would actually tell them to start eating their foods right away at home. And there's been no problems. We've had patients miss six months. And at six months, I mean, think about that. That's a lot of time to not eat things, right? And even there, the shifts were not as significant as I would have imagined. And we would bring them back in, re-challenge them. They don't have to restart anything. The longest we've had so far is 11 months. We've had an 11-month avoidance, you know, or, you know, I guess error, if you want to call it that. Um, And in that case, we definitely saw a shift, but it actually didn't take much to get the patient right back on track. So, you know, we really believe that this, the methods here that are present, uh, which again, are really based on the concept of saying, we will analyze a food protein, a food allergen as deeply as possible and make sure that your system is exposed to all the in- intricate aspects of protein uh, uh, analysis and exposure that will keep you in a state of tolerance. Uh, that our next phase of uh, research, actually, one of our big campaigns that we're going to launch here uh, early next year is this concept of can we get rid of the EpiPen? Right. And what that means is imagine, you know, we would have to get, again, this is not going to happen overnight. This takes time, but we would have to collect enough remission data, remission patient data and study their cells, particularly their, their immune cells, T cells, and demonstrate that their cells have shifted, right? In such a way that they can stop eating peanut, for example, or milk or whatnot for six months. And then we can re-challenge them outright to these large amounts of food protein without any clinical symptoms, right? And if, if you can achieve that, then fundamentally, you can make some arguments that, okay, I mean, it's it's going to be pretty difficult to be back in a situation where you would need an EpiPen. But again, th- that's not a guarantee. That's a lot of hard work ahead of us, but that's, uh, you know, that's kind of where we're at on that topic. Wow. Amazing. I, I think, you know, this is the first time in my life that I've really just, um, you know, handed over all my faith to another person, <laughs> which is sad, but I just have always been, you know, that type of person where I'm skeptical or just scared, you know, doctor prescribes something. I'm like, oh, I don't know about the side effects. And with this program, you know, I really just, um, just had faith in, in all of the work that you're doing. And it's, it's, you know, really amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do that, how um, how many visits are, is the current average? I know a lot of people want to know what they can expect, how long the program takes. Uh, well, it's again uh, everything's patient specific. Um, our average as of last week, um, again you know, we track our data all the time. Our la- average last week was seventeen point two visits uh, total. 
again, you know, we have some patients who have, you know, six visits. We have some patients who have, you know, 40 visits, unfortunately. Um, you know, so it just depends on on every case. I, I, I would tell people if you're trying to estimate how many visits you have, look at the most complicated proteins. If you're anaphylactic to wheat and milk, it's going to be a long road. Um, if you're anaphylactic to, you know, a tree nut or two tree nuts, it'll be a much shorter course of therapy. So I think that's probably a simple way, you know, to, to look at that. And, you know, if, if I might say, um, you know, I, I do think it's important uh, when, you know, because people often ask me, um, you know, why, you know, why don't we do more? You know, why don't we expand faster? Why don't we, you know, do certain things at a, at a, at a faster speed in, in a decade of time, you know, we've built an entire system that, that tracks and treats patients with food anaphylaxis into a state of remission, monitoring it extensively. Um, and that's done with zero external funding, right? As far as, you know, what the typical world is, if you look at any other type of treatment out there, it, there's only one method to get there these days, and that's with you know major you know typically venture capital funding things of that nature, and that's where they always align. And and not that there's anything wrong with that. Look, I'm a, I'm a market capitalist. I, I get that. Um, I run a lot of companies. I do a lot of things. Right. But the reality is that you have to you have when you have something this complicated, it doesn't fit the typical mold, and and if you hand it off to the wrong type of investment group. They will basically tank the company, right? It'll, it, it, they're not going to give enough attention to safety, which is our only priority, right? And then they won't give enough attention to patient experience and things of that nature. So, you know, we are moving as fast as we can, um, but at the same time, it has to be done right. I mean, you know, we cannot we cannot take any uh, any risk. Period. Yeah. So. With that being said, do you have any plans for expanding to new locations, moving east? Because that seems to be a hot topic as well. Everybody's wondering. <laughs> um, okay. Well, again, it's, you know, we have to do things w- with a situation where um, certain models have to ma- remain in place. So, for example, um, our laboratory, uh, which is a level three high complexity lab in the United States in the space of food anaphylaxis, only one of two in the nation like this. Um, you know, we have to be able to go, we have to be able to draw blood, get it here, do it accurately, make sure that there's no error in that blood because that blood really is critical to, you know, how the process works. So, you know, there has to be a series of steps that allow us to get to a point of safely opening and expanding. So, our first step here is by looking at a location about 80 miles away, which is in San Diego County. Uh, that is step one. And we are ready to launch that. Uh, we will have a fixed start date here of March 1st of next year. And what that is, is more or less a copy-paste of what we have here in our challenge centers and challenge sites. Um, and what our goal is to essentially know, can all of those semantics that allow a successful patient journey be replicated at that site? That includes physician training, staff training, the electronic medical record systems that we use, the data science systems, uh, any sort of an ancillary testing, plus the, the blood aspects. Should we have a successful move there, uh, meaning launch there, and it's running for six or 
months or so, uh, we will certainly be looking to expand beyond that because we will have the architecture in place to do so. Uh, will it be on the East Coast? Um, to be frank, I don't know. Uh, we would have to see what where interest lies. Um, I'm looking for the people to tell me that. You know, if 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 it's power of the people, the people are going to you know be clear and work hard to talk to their employers, talk to their insurance companies, get this form of therapy more available and covered. It is really much a grassroots movement from that standpoint. That allows us to get to them as quickly as possible and get to their kids as quickly as possible. Because I understand that traveling here is is absolutely cumbersome and, and it's not something that's sustainable in the long run. It's our job to get out to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was curious if you have any advice for people who, you know, just aren't able to do the program. They, they can't afford it. They can't get there. It's just not going to happen. Well, I, what I tell folks is uh, no matter, you know, once you get a diagnosis, uh, you know, a food anaphylaxis, the most important thing is to approach it with a lot of logic and logistics, meaning uh, get tested, get good data, organize your, your data in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, what you can avoid uh, or what you should avoid, you should avoid. But if there are food proteins that you can eat and you could do so safely, maybe that means getting a challenge done in, in, a, in a proper office setting, um, then do that. Uh, because a good, consistent diet is really critical to having a, an immune system that will mature. And at some point in time here, hopefully in the near future, we can uh, be more available locally. We can have more insurance coverage. We can have other programs available to help patients. Um, and then we'll get there. Uh, you but know, not the necessarily avoiding foods is what you're saying, right? That's right. That was the biggest, you know, kind of mind switch for me, I think, because with having, you know, my daughter was diagnosed very early on before one year of age uh, with these allergies. And you know, being a very type self-proclaimed type A person, when you tell me to avoid something, I am avoiding it as if my child's life depended on it, obviously. And so, you know, I remember you give the charts, you know, that three, I, I don't know if you still do it the same way as when we started, but the three column chart, right? Where it's like you have on the right side, the things that you actually are allergic to, but are tolerant of that middle column where maybe the body hasn't made a decision yet. Am I going to tolerate this or am I going to move towards anaphylaxis? And then that dreaded left column was the, you know, the most severe allergens. And um, I was shocked at some of the things that had shown up as actually being allergens that she was eating on a regular basis. And and so the idea was you want to move everything over (laughs) and, she had a lot of, my daughter had a lot of things in the middle and she was age 12 at the time. And I remember you saying, you know, normally you wouldn't see that with someone of her age. And I kind of went home and, and thought about that. And I wondered, oh, is that because I was so hyper vigilant about avoiding anything that could be an allergen that her body hadn't had the opportunity to decide because it hadn't really had the exposure. So, you know, it, it just was such a, it's such a complicated thing to decide, like, am I going to um, feed my child these things that are common allergies? And I know we have a propensity towards anaphylaxis. So it's very scary, I think, for parents. And, and just how to, on the one hand, you have to strictly avoid these things. And on the other hand, you want to expose your child if they can tolerate it 
to these foods. So, yeah, it's. I, I, I agree. I think, you know, they've gone back and forth over time. You know, I think on one hand, you know, I think doctors, uh, you know, want to do the right thing. They want to make sure kids are safe. And, you know, they'll say, well, okay, if you're allergic to one nut, avoid all the nuts. And, you know, that that was the the mantra for so many years. And then, you know, in the last 10 years, now they want to expose everybody to, you know, early introduction of proteins. And, you know, on either side of that, you're not seeing the success that you'd want. You know, if you avoid everything, that may predispose and, and, and set patients up to, as you described, you know, being in a highly sensitized and, uh, you know, clearly anaphylactic set of risk. Um, and then at the same time, if you do all this early food exposure, uh, we have seen plenty of patients who get early food exposure who not, they may be able to eat peanuts because they did that, but now they got three tree nut allergies and a seed allergy and so on and so forth. And the literature is out there showing that that might produce a level of risk. So, you know, the answer to the question is fundamental is, you know, we have to study the immune system. We have to study, you know, the way the immune system reacts to proteins in an organized way. And we have to walk the system into a state of tolerance. It is not a uh, issue that you can solve it in the first two or three years of life. Uh, as, as I say often, you know, and the studies certainly back that up, about two-thirds of people develop anaphylaxis after the age of 18. Imagine that, right? So the majority of people who are anaphylactic in the world developed it after they became an adult. And that's because of the same issue where, you know, we are humans, we have evolved to expose ourselves to a whole slew of proteins and the immune system is expecting to see those proteins on an irregular, frequent basis. You know, that's the kind of challenge mechanism that's in play. And if you decide to stop that and you go on these elimination diets or you go to a strict avoidance in certain areas, you are predisposing yourself to have that type of problem in the future. And our goal here is to get rid of that altogether. Wow. So yeah, having a, a varied diet with lots of exposure to different things, but doing that, <laughs> easing them into it. Oh my goodness. There's so much to think of as a parent. Yeah. If I may, if I may, I'd like to ask uh, Ellery a question because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm always curious about our patients who are adults in our program uh -huh. and how, you know, what their experience is like and and maybe what your previous experience was like in the world in the space of, of food allergy. Um, you know, what, what what is it that you've noticed that's been uniquely different uh, here versus elsewhere? Um, I'd say, for one, I honestly would just like to say that, like, I'm so glad I started TIFF when I did. Cause like I started when I was 18. So I wasn't a teen. Well, I, I was a teen. I wasn't a young teen. I wasn't a young child. Like I was kind of my own, you know, adult when I started. And I honestly feel like it was the perfect time for me. Cause like, as you guys were mentioning earlier that when you're older, you kind of have that fear of like the reactions, like you've lived through the trauma in a sense, but like also because I've lived through that, I know the other side of it. And I know so much more of what's at stake. So like, that's why I'm really glad I started it when I did, because like, I know what there is to gain by doing the program. Um, so that's just one thing I love just when I started. And I feel like it takes so much more pressure off of my mom too, because like, I'm, like I said, my own person, like I know what's at stake. So like, I'm willing to do everything. I'm willing to do the doses and to eat all the recommended and maintenance foods and like, 
I like going into it, I was like, even if I hate peanuts, if it makes me gag, I'm going to force myself to eat it so that I get food freedom. Like that was really my mentality. Like, I don't care what I'm going to eat it. Um, so honestly, like that's kind of just been my experience and my mentality in the program so far. Um, yeah. What was your other question? No, no, I was just, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll just, uh, maybe ask the question with a story. I mean, you know, I, I'm always, you know, I got into this space because of, um, the, the ultimate goal of safety, you know, I was like, look, we gotta, we gotta keep the patients safe and so forth. But I look at our patients who are out 10 years, five years, it doesn't matter. The number one thing that they talk about is often time, you know, like how much time is saved when you don't have to read labels. I mean, you know, Ellery's cleared of at least all the tree nuts now. So it's like, you know, like, okay, you don't have to announce things. You don't have to, I mean, and, and you have to understand, like, unfortunately, I, I mean, I don't know what that feels like. I don't have food anaphylaxis. I don't have to live that particular life. But when they all come back to me and they keep using the word time, I find that very interesting, you know, and I, I was just curious what, what you thought about that. Yeah, that honestly, that really is a good point. So right now I am dosing peanut. I was cleared for cross-contamination for peanut on June 30th this year. So, you know, I had my whole big celebration, best day of my life, honestly. Um, But it really like, that's so true. It saves me so much time. Like I remember before I'd have to like, you know, go to a restaurant and ask like all these questions and I'd like hold up the line like asking the waitress or something like all these questions and feel like so bad for it and so guilty. Like, like, I'm sorry, but I'm not like, I need to know. Um, but honestly, yeah, that's such a good point. Like now it's just like, it doesn't have peanuts in it. Like I'm good. Like I don't really necessarily need someone to read all the ingredients on a label and like determine what it is like grocery store. I can just like pick out stuff. Um, just kind of like scan the ingredients, you know, make sure we're good. I don't have to like, stand there for hours or like drive out of my way to like go pick up food for myself that like if my friends want to eat somewhere else like it really is it's a time saver <laughs> yep you feel like you need a degree in latin sometimes to read you know these food labels and know what everything means and you're googling like could this be a nut and mm-hmm. what is and it is such a time constraint and often so expensive to have to buy specialty foods that um, you know, don't have those ingredients. I used to spend, I wanted my daughter to have more protein and I was avoiding all the nuts and dairy and eggs. So I would find seeds and the only ones I could find that were free of cross-contamination were $30 a bag for a small bag of seeds. And it was like, oh my goodness, it's a fortune. You know, the most world's most expensive granola and and all those things. Yeah. And, oh. I think that's honestly one of the most, like the saddest things too, is that like with a food allergy, you have so many more expenses like, even though I'm really just allergic to peanut, but like, cause I can't have cross contamination for it. Like a lot of food allergy products are also like gluten free, dairy free, egg free, which just like makes them more expensive. And like, even right now, my best friend has celiac disease. So like she can't have gluten. And like, whenever we go out to eat, it's always like, oh, gluten free bread, gluten free pasta, gluten free this. I'm like, I feel so bad for you. Like you're paying so much extra money when like, I don't know, I just feel like it shouldn't be that way. No, I, I, it's funny. I, you know, we, we're talking to insurance companies now to try and get them to cover, you know, the cost of this program. Um, and it's not an easy task, uh, you know, but one of the things that we're bringing up to them is the economic question, right? Which is, all right, there's a cost to the program, you know, and, and you're, if you do the math on that, you know, cost, 
what do you get back? What's your return on your investment? And and the facts are, for the majority of cases, in a matter of about three to four years, you basically make your money back. And that doesn't include the fact that once patients, especially with you know younger patients or those with more severe anaphylaxis, uh, you know, often there's the case, you know, parents can go back to work. Uh, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that change around the home as well. And we don't even include that. You know, you're just looking from the cost of food, the cost of, uh, you know, medications, the cost of doctor's visits, the cost of an ER trip, the cost of whatever. So, you know, it definitely, um, you know, makes sense. I mean, obviously, we would love to reduce our cost uh, in, over time. That'd be the fundamental goal. But I think, um, you know, as we get more volume, uh, I'm sure that's all possible. Mm-hmm. It's such a good point that you bring up because, um, you know, I did take time off work. I was supposed to return to work when my daughter was, you know, turning three. I was fortunate where my profession at the time, you could take an unpaid leave up until the child was three and then you had to return. And we made the difficult decision for me to resign because we didn't feel comfortable, you know, leaving our daughter in someone else's care with all these allergies. And it just it felt so scary. So, you know, there there are so many costs to it and, and just you know, the way you live daily life is, is not normal. We're going to Florida next week. And we've been doing that every year since my kids were little. And my parents have a place down there. And, you know, they, they go to dinner and we would bring a, a massive cooler bag with our own plates, our own cutlery, because I was so afraid of cross contamination. I told you, I'm very, <laughs> you tell me to avoid it. I'm going to avoid it. You know, yep. Sterilizing everything. I would cook food to try to, you know, be the things that were on the menu so that she could have those same options. And this will be the first year that we're going that she can actually, again, just order off the menu and, and not have to worry. So these these things mean so much. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people wouldn't really know what that was like unless they had lived it. Yeah. Um, I, I ended up changing careers. I went back to school to become a therapist. And so now I'm a social worker, a psychotherapist. Um, I think, you know, this journey was a big part of that, looking at the mental health piece. And and that's a question that comes up a lot. Is that something, you know, that you've considered for the program is the mental health aspect of, you know, there's trauma from past reactions. There's grief with a diagnosis. There's anxiety and um, a fear of eating, which, <laughs> you know, pretty basic life function we need to do. And, and there's so much stress. Um and mental health issues that come with this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no, that's a great point. Uh, I think, again, you know, I got into this space purely from an intensive care type model. You know, I mean, that was, uh, you know, you see those things and you're like, we just got to do whatever it takes to not have that happen. And then as this program evolved and these patients were, you know, going through TIP, uh, it was clear that. You know, we have a percentage of patients who uh, have severe anxiety, uh, they have OCD, they have depression, and it impacts their ability to go through the program. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, nine to 10 years ago, I, you know, I had a, uh, we have a large number of psychologists and psychiatrists, kids in our program. So I asked them, I was like, all right, well, you know, given you have a child with this and given that you're, you have the expertise, you know, what do you recommend? And they all said, you know, this is not formally incorporated into training and curriculum in those uh, areas, those allied health fields. Um, 
probably five years ago, I coordinated with a local university here and their entire psychology department brought them on board and said, all right, you know, can you help us? You know, we, we, if, we, if we don't know what this is, we have to first standardize the model, right? Just like anything. And they immediately started uh, surveying and asking questions to our patients and everything went towards an eating disorder, you know, like anorexia, bulimia. And I said, that's not correct. I mean, let's not do that. I mean, this is not the same diagnosis. This to me is much more uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or something of that nature rather than an eating disorder. Right. Um, so to this day, I have yet, despite really searching, you know, far and wide, uh, I've not found a single individual who has a, you know, kind of technical level of expertise in the space. Now, there are a few in the, across the nation who have experience, but uh, not not anything that's validated. Uh, about two years ago, we started doing an anxiety uh, assessment on every single patient when they come in, and it becomes a scored assessment or basically a validated survey. So we have collected that data, um, and we have we would like to move in that direction, not only for the patients but for the the parents as well. Uh, but to be honest with you, it's been especially with COVID, it's been difficult to to kind of find the solution to that, especially if we want it to integrate with the rest of the way our data systems work. I would say that the number one solution for these patients is get through your third or fourth food challenge here. And, and most of them seem to be just fine after that. You know, a lot of it comes down to, as you described, you know, you're kind of handing off this this care and then, you know, the level of, of risk potentially to our system. And if you trust our system, obviously, your, your you know, kind of threshold for anxiety is, is different. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it's a serious problem. And we hope to, if it doesn't, if we can't find those people, we'll have to build it ourselves. Mm-hmm. I had my daughter in acute resuscitation, you know, fighting for her life after eating a food. And I think probably the scariest day for me was when they gave her milk, just because I was so afraid of that allergy and, you know, sitting in the office. And I, I, my daughter was 13 at that age, um, at that time. And I didn't want her to see that I was afraid because I didn't want her to be afraid. So I'm trying to hide my own emotions as, you know, she's about to ingest that large quantity of milk to do her challenge. And, um, I think I, I made one little comment, like, you're sure. <laughs> and I never questioned anything to that point, but you're sure. And they're like, we're sure. And, uh, you know, my daughter's like, mom, stop. <laughs> Teenage, like, mom, just stop, right? It's fine. It's fine. I'm like, okay. You know, it, it really is a feeling of surrender to, you know, to hand that over to someone else and say, okay, I'm putting my faith in, in this science, in this math. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think I went out into the lobby and I was crying because I'd watched the video that advertised your program on the website back, you know, when I first found out about it and there was a child having milk and ice cream. And I, you know, now my child, we got to go shopping after and, and have a milkshake at um, in an out burger. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what's that been like for you, Ellery, with, you know, eating some things that you were previously avoiding? Do you ever feel scared or anxious? I honestly didn't. It's probably like supernatural or something, but I feel like I've just kind of just like fully trusted Dr. Rondala. So don't fail me, please. But um, just like, I, I know, I just feel like I have so much faith in the program and hope that like it's going to work. And just like looking at the numbers and statistics, I'm like, all right, it 
what would be different about me that makes it not work? So I'm like, let's just go for it. Um, but yeah, it's been so great just like being able to eat anything. And like when I was cleared for cross contamination, my big, like one of the big things I wanted to eat was Chick-fil-A. Like I hadn't eaten that for 20 years. People are like, what, how? I'm like, you know, allergy. But that was just like the best experience being able to eat Chick-fil-A and like, I went to like Starbucks and I got like boba and donuts and like I went to like a food hall on my cross contamination day and just like ate from like every single stand there was and it was just amazing honestly just to try anything and everything. I think with my therapy patients, you know, when I when I try to explain what's going on with anxiety, it's a future thinking. It's that you're afraid of something that could happen. And yeah. so, you know, I would have parents contact me about allergies and say, you know, well, my child has a problem because they're, you know, not eating. And I said, well, if you've had a life-threatening reaction to consuming something, I think it's normal that you would be afraid of repeating that action and having a similar result. So, yeah. you know, as you said, Dr. Rendell, once you've been through a few of the challenges, you build that confidence you know, if you were afraid and, and unfortunately, I think people have had bad experiences before they get to the program with OIT where they've had maybe a reaction. And, and so they're scared of that same thing happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think Ellery, you know, said it well, it's, it's, it's a, it's a question of numbers, right? I mean, in, in the end, it's all a, a game of numbers. Um, you know, the numbers here are exceedingly good, um, obviously. And, and again, this is all done under, about as tight a regulation as possible, uh, you know, more than a drug company at this stage. Uh, but again, I think one thing we don't get any credit for are the cases that are in the less than 1%, you know, the ones that are struggling. Um, and, you know, we don't give up on them. Uh, you know, we will usually there's a reason for it. And it's uh, frankly not it's not our issue. Uh, you know, there's kids who patients who come in and they get another diagnosis. Uh, we have patients who unfortunately develop other disease states. And so we don't give up on them. We actually will work extremely hard to find a solution to their problem. We'll coordinate and even work with many other physicians, no matter where they're located, to get them to the finish line. So, um, and again, that's part of the the philosophy of what what we believe in, and certainly what I believe in. And you know, I think uh, in the end, you you can't take away people's hope. One of the questions I wanted to make sure I covered uh, while I still have you here it was about puberty and, um, you know, how that can affect remission and also, you know, pregnancy. Because I know hormones, uh, we did find, um, and my daughter would be mortified that I'm talking about this on, on the podcast, but, you know, as she did go through puberty, there was a change in how she reacted to some of the foods and we had to kind of modify our plan a little bit. So um, maybe you can speak to just how hormones play into the whole uh, right. And, and, and there's actually a handful of things. I mean, what, what I always, you know, tell our teams here is the program works when you understand the basis of good math. And good math means you have clean numbers. The numbers are, uh, reproducible, you know, no matter how you obtain those numbers. That means you have to have normal anatomy and you have to have a normal immune system. Normal anatomy, normal immune system. And so anatomy means your mouth all the way through your intestinal tract. It means your lungs. It means your heart, you know, normal anatomy. Normal immune system means it's not overreactive. It's not autoimmune. It's not any of those other things. 
So in cases where someone is moving through the program and they have a situation where an inflammatory state kicks up. So for example, uh, in, in puberty, uh, inflammatory states do kick up and that's a normal thing. Uh, that can cause a shift in how the program is actually working. And so that's something we pay particularly close attention to. Uh, similarly, if someone has a broken bone or some sort of other major injury state, that can also change some of those things. So that's why during treatment, we're always cautious with and, and, and provide this 24-7 care and support to make sure that things are going well um, and then to bring those questions in. Uh, similarly, even with things like vaccines, when you get a vaccine, you want to be extremely careful uh, with how that you know, how that process works. And again, we provide all the support towards those mechanics. But the nice thing is once you hit remission, um, it, certainly I'd say six to nine months past your first remission, we don't really see too many issues with this at all, frankly. So um, we do believe that we're able to normalize that experience across uh, people's individual immune systems and so forth. I did have some questions from followers about COVID and just if you had any advice on vaccines for younger kids, um, you know, five years around that age who are in the program near graduating. And if there were particular vaccines that, you know, you recommend for, for kids with allergies. Um, I mean, that's, that's certainly a complicated question. Um, I think the, the, short an the short answer is, uh, you know, we have to likely get to a position where every child has some form of vaccination immunity for COVID. Uh, that even includes less than five, because it's pretty clear that native immunity, meaning you got an infection and you have some immunity, probably is not enough, at least length of time wise, and certainly not against variants, or at least many of the variants that are of concern. So given that's the case, um, it's certainly important. And I do believe the data in kids, especially five to 11 or 5 to 12 is really good. It's really strong and positive data minimum as far as side effects of any kind, frankly. Uh, food allergy kids, as we, as our system published, uh, really are at lower risk of COVID than anyone else. Uh, we actually found that uh, in, this was recently published in, uh, in uh, th uh, Thorax, which is one of the largest uh, journals in Europe, that similarly allergic people also have a very low risk of getting COVID. So there's certain reasons to say, you know, you know, you probably don't have to go over the top as far as boosting and so on and so forth, but at least get some sort of uh, vaccination-based immunity in. In uh, We have, obviously, recommendations on how to modify your treatment program as it's happening, but I think that's going to be critical to get us on the other side of the pandemic. So, I, I, hope, I hope that's where everything goes forward. Wow, a benefit of allergies. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I remember when Dr. Rondawa, I think, told my family that before. And I was like, at least something good came out of this. <laughs> Allergies for the win. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Uh, Ellery, is there anything else that you want to share with my audience just about, you know, your journey, the program? Um, I think, honestly, this program is just really amazing there's been so much like I feel like just like good good feedback and like the doctors are all amazing and like I feel like whenever I go to like SoCal Food Allergy for an appointment like I'm just at home in a way like everyone's just like family like even other patients that I don't know I'm like oh, I love you guys you know <laughs> um 
And like, I run my own like food allergy sort of Instagram account where I post about TIP and SoCal and like, I get to interact with like other patients and parents of kids in the program. And like, it's just always so encouraging to, I feel like hear about everyone's story in it and like how we can just love each other through the program and like every struggle. Um, but yeah, honestly, just TIP's amazing and I love it so much. Um, I wouldn't change like my journey or like growing up with a food allergy for the world. Like even though it was, it was obviously hard living elementary school, middle school, high school with a peanut allergy. I feel like I was always like, you know, the kid with the allergy. It seems like I was the first one kind of wherever I went to have a very severe food allergy where like my mom had to like really um, fight for me. But like, <clears throat> and like, so I was kind of always the first one, but I don't know, it gives me so much more of appreciation now for this program and just like almost being able to like mentor, like encourage people younger than me because like I've lived through it and like it's really just shaped like who I am having a food allergy and being able to really relate with people. So even though I did start TIP like later in my teen years when I was 18, like I am who I am because of it. So I wouldn't change it at all. Yeah. I usually ask the whoever I have as a guest on the show, you know, for the silver linings and it really is the community and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it brings people, social media, you know, gets a lot of bad press, but for us, it was what led us to you, Dr. Rindawa. And yeah. so I will forever be a, a fan <laughs> yeah. of, of the community and that, and, you know, I, I can't say it enough. I don't know you know, if I will have the opportunity to speak to you again, we'll be back obviously for our our follow-up visits and all of that. But like, I cannot say enough as a mom, how grateful I am to you. Like, I do believe that this program is life-changing and life-saving and there is no price for me. I would, you know, do anything I could have to, to get here. And there were a lot of people who helped me with that. And, um, you know, but I am forever grateful to you for, yeah. I think, saving my child's life and giving her that normalcy. So, you know, you are for sure my most important guest that I've ever had or will have on this podcast. Um, yeah. You know, and I've spoken to people from major allergy organizations, and I really hope that this becomes accessible um, and, and grows and expands um, for more people get that this opportunity because no thank you i you know look i I, we're all we're all in this together i you know anybody who's working in the space to um you know find you know legitimate uh forms of treatment not not management you know we're tired of managing food allergies let's treat it and if we're going to treat it let's get it into remission and you know hey if you're on that if you're in that boat then then let's go let's sail together let's get this thing done yeah i think i can say for everyone with a food allergy, you know, people always always ask kids like, who's your hero and stuff. I think I can speak for everyone when we say you, Dr. Rondawa, are our hero, like forever yeah. and always. <laughs> well, thank you guys. I Look, I, I appreciate it. I, I do. Listen, I, 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 uh, there is a, you know, it's a burden to carry, right? When, when you got to deal with 
that many patients on an ongoing basis. And years ago, man, I lost a lot of sleep. I mean, it was, it was, none of this was clear or easy at that time, but now not that it is, but you know, we have systems in place to make it safe. And now our job is to get it out to the people and there's a lot out there, you know? And so yeah, everything you're doing to help uh, and, and promote uh, our system is really, really appreciated both of you. Uh, and I hope, you know, uh, it, it's funny. The one thing I always get a kick out of is, you know, how when it's all said and done, no one likes the taste of peanuts. I got to find a way to make like a tasty peanut item or like we, we need new candy or something, you know, like we got to find something that makes peanuts taste good. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite thing has always been peanut M&Ms and popcorn. And I, you know, I never ate it in front of my daughter because I didn't want her to be jealous. My favorite ice cream is peanut butter and chocolate ice cream. So I, I'm a fan. But yeah, my daughter, I mean, she would eat those fake cheeses and, and I don't want to say any names because I don't want to be disparaging. I was very grateful for them, but they're gross. And <laughs> <laughs> when she got to have real cheese, she was like, meh, I don't know if I like this. And I was like, what? Yeah. Love it. But it's, it's for sure new, new flavors and tastes. And yeah, just so grateful that she gets the opportunity to try all these new foods and, and decide for herself. So. Is there anything else you want to share, Dr. Rindawa? Um, well, I just probably wrap with saying, um, you know, we are uh, very serious about uh, our growth and making sure we can get out to our patients. I mean, look, I hear you loud and clear. Um, you know, there's six to eight million potential patients uh, in at least in the pediatric you know, spectrum. Uh, we are doing everything we can to get out there as quickly as possible. Uh, but as I mentioned, we need your help. Uh, you know, folks who want to see this move, um, talk to your doctors, talk to your insurance companies, uh, contact us, let us know uh, what, you know, what else we can do and, and we will try to get there. But this is a, an immense undertaking and, you know, we've taken it so far. Um, it, it's really going to take the community to kind of get us uh, all the way to the finish line. So as much as we can do, as much as you can do to help us, uh, vice versa, we will do the same. Uh, anticipate in 22 that we will uh, be doing a lot more outreach across the U.S. Uh, we will be present in, in a lot of other communities in the U.S. I can promise you that. And I hope that uh, especially if, if COVID can, can get to the other side, uh, then, you know, we can be in a position where this is really much more widely available uh, by 2023. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, it was hard enough traveling internationally for the program before COVID and then, <laughs> you know, global pandemic hits. And I said to my daughter, well, you know, this, this final leg of the journey, we are being tested once again and we can do hard things. And, and that was definitely a life experience, but I think we're all tired of living through a, you know, major world event, historical events and <laughs> ready to get to the other side and it'll be a little yeah. bit easier for us all to get where we need to be to access the stuff. So thank you so much, Dr. Rindawa, again, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Allery, for sharing your story. And I will be sharing in the podcast notes, any and all relevant links. So you know, make sure to give me those and, and I'm happy to support um, what you're doing in any way that I can. Thanks for listening to the Allergy Mom podcast. For more information, recent blog posts, to subscribe to the newsletter and more, be sure to visit theallergymom.com and follow the Allergy Mom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook.